When you listen to Chatter That Matters, do so knowing that I'm primarily a one-person band. I do have Tara helping me with my digital strategy and Tia in South Africa with some social media. But more often than not, I'm the one reaching out for people to come on the show. And the pushback I get at times is, I don't have a story to tell. I didn't win a gold medal. I'm not a crusader for the planet. I didn't write a New York Times bestseller. And I come back to them and say, everybody has a story to tell because everyone's life is a journey. We're all on a quest to improve upon our circumstances. Today, with these horrific headwinds, there's too many people whose journey is simply trying to survive, keep a roof over their head and food on the table. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about why philanthropy matters and what we need to do to give people a hand up. Others out there are looking for love, a place or a sense of belonging. You might be pursuing your passions, preoccupied with helping others, battling health issues, or working to be a better person. Whatever you're doing on your journey, I hope you get to where you need, want, and deserve to go. And that brings me to my journey. A few weeks ago, I had Mark Ferrier on my show. It's already one of my most popular because people love Mark. His rawness, his honesty, authenticity, humanity. And he offered so many incredible takeaways about life and livelihood. But at the end, Mark turned the microphone on me and said, it's time you tell your story. So today, you're going to hear about my journey. Mark's going to be the host, and I'll be the guest. I kept my family out, as I feel those are their stories to tell. But I can tell you that I'm so proud of my daughters, for who they are, their values, their appetite for life, their life partners, and even now being blessed with a grandson. I'll be internally grateful to their mother, who invested so much of her life into theirs. I have three wonderful sisters and many friends, and I'm thankful the spirits of my parents are alive within me. And seven years ago, I remarried someone I will happily grow old with. And I hope we have decades ahead of us. And she came with a family of South Africans that I consider my own. And speaking about me, there's nothing that I've accomplished, and I mean nothing, that I could have done on my own. I've been blessed to have worked with talented people my entire life. Partners like Victoria, Tom, Bennett, and Andrew. And employees who pushed me as I hope I pushed them. And even today to work with people like Sheila, Allen, and Caroline at RBC. It's just been my honor to be in a company of so many wonderful people. And in between the career highlights I share, I want you to know that I've made many mistakes and at times lacked good judgment and regrets while Sinatra said, I've had more than a few. I did it my way. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. So with some trepidation, I give you Mark Ferrier, our guest host this week on Chatter That Matters, and, well, me. So, Mark, over to you. Yeah, well, Tony, it's not just me. I know that a lot of your actual following has been asking questions about who is Tony and what chapters Tony's life and how Tony's gone from really agency to now host, a point TV show, radio host, But there's more to Tony than just the voice. And I think that it's really important that people understand some of the things that Tony's not only been through, but I think that there's some really, really great fundamental lessons for us all to take. I actually had a good 
time going back to a lot of your and my history and your history. And so I'm, I'm going to give a theme for this episode and then I'm going to name it. Um, and the theme is really this one of your pinnacles of success. And we'll talk about it, which is you were inducted into the hall of fame of almost really two big things in your career, the marketing and advertising hall of fames. And, and you said something in one of your speeches that I think really summarizes not only a starting point for us, but also maybe uh, an anthem or a song or, you know, a song that we need for the economy right now and, and really our culture. And I think that that's this idea that you said it's a destiny of choice, not a destiny of chance. And I think that that's really a great starting point where a bunch of choices you've made have led you to where you are. And let's dig into a few of them. And so to play on your own world, I'm going to call this the chapters that matter with Tony Chapman. And let's start back. And so I'm going to call chapter one lessons in lemonade. You know, why that chapter of your life really in the beginning was so defining and how something simple as lemonade became not only a push for you, but a metaphor for really your, your future career. Well, Mark, growing up, and this is, this probably takes me back to age five. One day though, I started thinking about how can I earn some money. How can I shake my neighbors down? And like many other kids, the de facto enterprise is a lemonade stand. So I went in my mom and saying, I've got a great idea. I want to set up a lemonade stand on my front lawn. And to make the long story short, she said, fantastic. Well, an hour later, I had to figure out what the profit margin would be on that lemonade because she sold me the Kool-Aid. She rented me the pitcher. She made me pay for the glasses. And when I Wanted to go outside and just set up a, a table. She said, it's shady. No one's going to drink lemonade. You got to do it in the park. So next thing we did is we created a sign and we went down and we found the sunny area of the park. And I, when coming back, I had no idea whether I would have made any more or any less money, but it was mine. And I realized that I could be in control of the things that I'm capable of being in control of and gave me the kind of validation and the courage that said it wasn't about my physical prowess. It wasn't even about my intellectual prowess. It really was about passion. And that's why that quote, destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice has always resonated with me because within each of us, we have an ability to choose. What was this pivot where you realized you had to control? Up until about age eight, my dad was as beautiful as a human being as you could be in terms of, you know, organizing the kids on the street. If there's somebody that was a little slow, he would knock on the door and take that kid out for a coffee. And uh, he was just a wonderful guy, but the chemistry in his brain changed. And, and the, you know, in those days they called it manic depressive. Now it's bipolar. And he started self-medicating with alcohol. And as the disease progressed, uh, he had no sense of right or wrong. I mean, he would bounce checks. He would uh, spend us almost into bankruptcy. If my mom hadn't gone back to work, we would have been homeless. And I remember one day he comes home uh, and he always tried to bring a present home as a way of forgiveness. But he came back with this fourth slice shiny toaster. In those days, I mean, a four-slice toaster, I mean, only the wealthy would have something like that. And I remember Saturday morning, it was a big treat when we could afford Pop-Tarts. And my, I had two Pop-Tarts in there and I could smell the raspberry cooking. And somebody walked into our kitchen unannounced without knocking on the door, unplugged the toaster and took it away with my Pop-Tarts and said, your dad bounced a check. That's my toaster. And at that point, I mean, I guess there was humility and embarrassment and shame, but more importantly, I knew that I never wanted to be in that situation again, standing on such uncertain ground. And I certainly didn't want people around me to be that way. Yeah. It, it, that emotion, even when you talk about it, I feel it. Like I literally feel it in my chest. And, and you and I had a chance to talk about the idea between a mistake and a failure um, when I talked about my dad. And so before we move on, how does the chapter with your dad 
come to some sort of resolution. Well, it's interesting. So my dad got progressively worse. And when my youngest sisters were ready to leave home, uh, my mom got very sick and died very quickly. And I always said she died of old age at age 53. She had bore so much of the stress and pressure keeping a roof over our heads. And my dad went into an unbelievable tailspin and we let him hit bottom. And he ended up in a mission in Montreal. And the priest at the time took him under his wing and he started to take his medications. He started listening to doctors. By the time he died, he, his alcohol was in check. Uh, his kids loved him. His grandchildren loved him dearly. And he left this planet so ashamed by who he was during those times, but validated by his children, by us letting him know it wasn't his fault. And that's the first real experience I had with mental illness. And it takes a combination of medicine and sheer will to get people back on a path. And I'm just so proud of my dad that he got back on that path. And the path that your dad got on, I would say, is probably your first experience with really a true reinvention, would it not be, of watching somebody truly change? Without question. And just finding a way where he grabbed onto some rungs in the ladder and stood there and could look around and eventually stand with confidence that he wasn't going to fall off and return to binge drinking or these uh, manic states. Yeah, interesting on my dad. I, I wish I had that awareness when he was going through his reinvention because I think I could have been way more empathetic and way more supportive. And, and only years later could I understand that my dad really went through that reinvention and probably how hard that is at certain phases of your life to really double down and find some purpose that you can reinvent to. And so um, I understand that power and that force. And so I, I'm glad your dad did it. So let's go back. You're in Montreal. You found that you want to make a choice. And that choice is that you never want to have that feeling of out of control. You probably smell those raspberries every time you feel that sense of out of control. And so you found something. And something, I think, was this idea of creativity. And so creativity led you in a path to get out of being out of control. Let's call it that way. So tell us what the first big step of that path was. One of the things that I did in grade seven when our school canceled our grad dance because I guess the kids were misbehaving or some teacher got hit in the head with a snowball or whatever grade sevens do. I, I threw my first party in the basement of the church. It was our grad. And I I guaranteed the band $20, which I didn't have. And people laugh now, $20 is what you give a kid for allowance. $20 back then was a lot of money. And I pulled through it. And I went on through my high school years throwing a lot of parties, at, you know, New Year's and stuff and taking risk and getting reward. But it was when I discovered radio, and this is a, a very quick story. So my summer job was to be working at the Force and Stream Club, I think it was called in, in Dorval, this very wealthy private club, wealth like unlike anything I've seen. I went down there the first day and the guy hands me a shovel and says, you know, dig this rose garden. And I'm looking at it, it looks a stack of rose bushes that, you know, look like they're endless. And I, of course, don't have a hat. I don't have water. The only water is out of a tap and a hose. It's about 80 years old. And I start digging and I go home at lunch and I go, this is the worst job I've ever had. And I happened to read the local news and chronicle that would come in. And in the classified said, uh, it was an ad to sell radio advertising, commission only. So I finished the day's work and got as many of those rose bushes as I could in the garden. And I thanked the person for the opportunity. Next day I went in, there was four people in the boiler room. If anybody, boiler room is these sort of, you know, cubicles with people on the phone. And for the last three weeks, between the four of them, they'd sold three of these packages. 
And that week I sold seven. And by the end of the summer, this is a true story. Now the station was on its last legs, but at the end of the summer, I had outsold the radio people that were on the road. The magical part about it was I could sell air. Next summer, I actually went on and got on the road. And that's how I put myself to university was selling radio advertising full time, always commission only, knowing that there was zero if you were unsuccessful, but literally no upside if you were. Well, for those of you who've met Tony live, you know that, yes, he does chatter that matters, but but really Tony feeds off human energy. And so, so you're on the road. You're trying to learn these lessons. You've also then found your passion. You always talk about head, heart, and hands. And and openly, Tony, I love you. But you being manual labor and using your hands has never really been your success. Let's be super honest. You're on the road. So how do you go from, okay, I'm making money to this really becoming a passion? So I'm driving up St. Charles Boulevard one day. I'm driving my girlfriend's Ford Pinto. Have we anybody remember those cars? If you got hit from behind, the gas tank would explode. And I see a coming soon sign in front of a plaza. I said, well, what a cold call opportunity. Turns out it was a Southern barbecue place, Rib Tickler, about to open up. I walked in. If anybody's been in the restaurant business, it was carnage, but I tracked down the owners and I'm walking in. Mark, I got this Samsonite briefcase. It's got my initials on it because I had the same initials as my dad, combination lock. I've got this thing organized, my pens, my rulers, all the stuff, the all the swag, everything you can imagine. This thing is just like loaded. And I open it up and I... Like 10 seconds into my pitch about my radio station. And the couple look at me and say, kid, kid, sorry, I know your radio station. We actually love it, but we have no money. We're all in this restaurant. Look around. We've borrowed from our friends, our families, our cards are maxed out. So I close up this briefcase and I'm walking out. Now this thing feels like it's a hundred pounds in my arms. Just as I get to the door, hey, kid, I turn around. You talk to me. Yeah, we're just bringing out a test plate of ribs. Do you want to try them? Mark, they were the finest ribs. I mean, I used to love the Barbie bar, and these things were the best ribs I've ever eaten. <laughs> so the next day, coincidentally, I showed up at the same time, just as the Southern Fried Chicken and Biscuits were coming out. By day three, we're, we're good friends, and they buy a $300 package of advertising. And I went to my station. I pulled all the favors. I got them the best time, the producers and everything else. And I was so excited, and I wrote the ad. And I show up Tuesday night, opening night, soft opening, but you know we'd advertise it. Walk in the door, and nobody's there. Just these two owners, uh, a couple of their friends, and it, you get you weren't smelling ribs, you were smelling fear. And I, you know, I went to reassure them. It's, you know, it's just started. And next thing you know, behind me, this bell rings. It's one of those doors that when it opened up, they had a little bell. And next thing you know, there's no bell ringing because the door stayed open. Place was jammed. It was slammed. I started busking tables. I mean, we were way, way over capability for that night. But I was going around. I started asking people how they heard about it. They said, "I heard about it on the radio." And I was so moved that, and I found my purpose there, that if I could find a way to have real insights in the consumer and, and unmet needs and, and then serve up this beautiful piece of creative, I could connect consumers to small business owners. I could connect buyers and sellers, and I couldn't think of a more magnificent way to make a living. And that point, again, going back to Destiny is not a matter of chance, it's a matter of choice. I made that choice that my life wouldn't be finance, which I was studying in school. I saw smiles and I saw dreams starting to make become a reality. And that just, that made me feel so special. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. But it hit me because I realized at that moment that I was very good at getting consumers to buy my clients' products and services. But they'd never really 
bought in. I was good at oiling the transactional wheel, but it wasn't a transformative. And I realized then that it was stories. What is it about stories that are so magical? And I found out that we're wired for stories. And you think about it, your, some of your best memories of grandparents or your parents was when they read you stories and the ghost stories around the fire where you felt you, the hair in the back of your neck. This really leads us into the next big chapter, which is you started chasing creativity and, and you believed that creativity could be a currency. So you leave Montreal, we all know, because the story takes a chapter in Toronto, but you then jump into this agency world. So maybe let's take us through from the start of the agency world and then we'll navigate through how it ends at the pinnacle of the agency world, if we can, with, with many twists and turns. So I get this job in Toronto and I go to work for somebody. First and last time I've ever worked for anybody. And after about 12 months, and we were in the business of corporate communications. In those days, there were big 12 and 18 projector slideshows. If you could imagine before video, if you wanted to create motion on a screen, it was almost like a giant picture book. One slide going to another that created a sense of movement. And I, I did it for about a year. And I said, this is a crazy business. The person comes in, they want a slideshow because their CEO is going to be talking and every word has to be perfect. And they've got $20,000. And it's just, it's, it's like the most painful exercise. And I said, but they all say the same thing. Great products, great people, great opportunities. So I convinced them, why don't we do these as generic shows and when the, instead of saying Pepsi Cola, it says our company will drop a Pepsi logo in and Pepsi product and Pepsi people. But next week we can take out 80 slides and it could be a show for General Motors. They thought it was a crazy idea. So I said, well, I, I went off and I started it. I, I joined forces with Mike Preston and Leo Slocum, Andrew Crichton, who had been with me in the old agency. And we created this off the shelf. And I knew nothing about running an agency, Mark. I would say within three years, we had over a hundred employees. We were producing shows all over the world. And out of that, I amplified it saying, well, if we're doing the show and we're doing the slides, why aren't we planning your meeting? Why don't we do the travel for your meeting? Why don't we do the entertainment? I signed Second City. I had holograms. I had lasers. It, it got to the point, there was so much money being spent in the 80s that one client gave us a million dollars in the 80s, probably about five million now, to launch five cars to their dealers over a four-hour period. So it was a rock star agency. 30 was somebody that was elder. I sold that business to a British firm for $28 million. I couldn't believe it. And 27 million of that was in stock. And within six months, the company I'd sold it to had gone bankrupt. I had no agency. I had no ability to monetize. I had taken the money I'd gotten. Don't forget, I had to share it with other partners. I'd taken the money that I'd gotten, put it into a big house. I had no liquidity. And I'm sitting there with two young kids wondering, what am I going to do now? But I can tell you what Communicate taught me, once again, was not only the power of creativity to, to get people's eyes to shine and hearts to beat and, 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 and emotionally invested. It taught me about strategy. And literally, the Friday that it all fell apart, the Saturday, I had dinner with two people that, once again, created a new tightrope for me. Yeah. So everyone's clear. That was Communicate, is that right? The agency was communicating. That's right. And I want to spend a, a tiny little bit of time on communicate because I, I, I think that there's an interesting part here, which is you found a way to reinvent not only how people communicated, but a business model around it. In your and my old world, we talk about insights a lot and insights sort of lead to ideas. And I'm not sure that that term insights is generic across people thinking about things differently, if that's fair. Like maybe explain a little bit around you have this insight and then that insight leads to almost this perpetual motion of reinvention across the tightrope. And maybe the insight is actually what makes you make your first step on the tightrope. So can you maybe just talk a little bit about what was it that gave you the aha moment? You know, it's a great 
question. And it's so funny because you're right. Most people want to race to an idea before they have an insight. And what an insight is, is understanding that whoever you're talking to in life, and this is a lesson for everybody, whether you're talking to your child, whether you're talking to your peers, your boss, whether you're trying to reach a consumer or attract money, every person you're talking to is on a journey through life. They're looking for something in life. And if you can help them get to where they need to go, if you can be a facilitator, a motivator, a mentor, uh, if you can be a creator, they're going to pay a lot of attention to you because you're helping them on their quest. The problem with most people is they tend to think of themselves as a hero of the story and they've got a big idea that's going to help the world. People with insights are more the Yodas of the world, the Merlins of the world, the fairy godmothers of the world. They're not the protagonist on the journey. They're just there saying, the Cheshire Cat, I'm there to help you get there. And so I've always looked at insights by really trying to listen generously, observe intently, and have incredible empathy for what people are doing because we're all facing, in some cases, speed bumps, change in direction, headwinds, and in other times, I would argue times like today, a sledgehammer coming roaring at us. Could be called a pandemic, it could be called a war, could be called a, a, an economy in a tailspin. And you have to understand, once you understand that out of it, you'll see incredible opportunity. But the opportunity with insight is not, oh, I'm going to get rich, or the opportunity is not going to be, I'm going to be famous, which sadly is a lot of the motivators of people wanting to be entrepreneurs. What it is, is I'm going to help. I can make a difference. I can look in the mirror at the end of the day saying a good day's work. And I often use this in, when I'm speaking in conferences. It's like a blacksmith. At the end of the day, they go home and the husband or wife says to the blacksmith, how was your day? He said, fantastic. Mark came in with a, a horse that was limping. It's his only horse. He wasn't sure if, he, if it was going to make it. And we've managed to put a shoe on it and the horse is fine. That's a good day's work. And I think that's what insight's all about is really identifying these unmet needs. And let's get you over that speed bump. Let's find a new path for you to pursue in life. And that's kind of what insights are about to me. Let's get to maybe the biggest chapter, or at least the chapter that I think a lot of people know Tony for. I think let's call it the big idea chapter. And Cap C launches. So on a Friday, you thought you had $28 million divided by a bunch of partners. And, and so you were probably feeling pretty good. And then on a Saturday morning, you're sitting in a house with two young kids. There's no real path in front of you. So what happens that leads you to the marketing legends hall of fame? And, and that is not a quick story to how to get from A to B. So what'd you do? So I, I happened to be having dinner Saturday night with Chris Strawn and Ellie Rubin. And Ellie had worked for me in the past. I explained the situation over dinner and they said, well, we've got a little art studio. We have a desk for you. Use it. And I went in there and I was shell. I have never been lacking confidence the way I was. I had no idea. I mean, I used to, when I was doing business, I, I mean, I had millions of dollars of capital sunk into equipment, 18 projectors, slideshows and, and big events. And now I'm sitting on myself going, what am I going to do? And I'm sitting there and there's only two lines to this place. So if somebody's on the phone, two people are on the phone, you just get a busy signal. They didn't even have an answering machine. Tuesday, for some reason, uh, LCBO, I connect with LCBO and they give me a $3,000 project. And then Roger Baranowski, another beautiful story, sadly no longer with us, 
calls me up and says, Hey, I hear you're, he's from Pepsi and I've been Pepsi being a great client. I hear you're on your own now. I got a $20,000 video I want you to produce and you probably need some cash. So why don't you send a, a taxi up and we'll get you a check right today. The following week, and you guys, you and I have talked about the importance of YPO. I'm with my form, my Young Presence Organization form, and they come together and they put together a $50,000 line of credit, not asking for equity, not asking for guarantees. They just said, we, we believe in you. Wow. And by the end of that first year, we had made $600,000 profit. And I felt like it was my lemonade stand again. It was my own. And we started to do things that became quite world-renowned, and it was an incredible run. But you know, the only thing I could tell about running an agency is, you know, it's tough because when you're growing the agency, you can do no wrong. You can hide a lot of mistakes in your profitability. But as the economy changes and you have to find a way to do a lot more with less, you realize that who you have on your team is some of the, the game changers are very hard to keep because they suddenly become in demand. The people that are in the middle, are they willing to work that much harder? And then you have people on your team that were probably carried along in your success, but you might not be able to take as you go forward. And that's the thing that hurts you the most as a CEO is you got to say goodbye to some people. And that was to me where capital C went from big ideas that work to me also recognizing that with running a business comes a consciousness and conscious, uh, being conscious about the fact that these were lives impacted by whether you were successful or not. And I think that's the greatest pain I felt in my agency was, and the thing I'll always remember most is not the growth and the awards and winning agency of the year and all the accolades that come with, my God, you're successful. It was when I had to tighten the ship and say goodbye to people that had believed in you. Yeah. And, and so for the people that are listening who don't understand the industry, I, just let me take a step back for a minute. So what Tony's saying here is the industry was pretty standard. It's like any industry. There was three or four massive competitors that owned the marketplace. And, and Tony, you start Capital C. And to frame it up, you took potentially the ugliest part of the marketplace in the economy. Everyone was sort of throwing this idea of promotional marketing in storeways scraps. And you built not only a game-changing agency, and I know you're going to be humble about this, but you built an agency that won agency of the year competing with these incumbents who are global companies. And you technically beat them at their own game over 10 or 15 years. And, and you built really, as you would say, probably, well, I will say, you're not going to say it, the leading agency in Canada that everybody was either trying to figure out how you did it, trying to compete with you, trying to steal your people. But really, you were at the top of the game. Can we agree on that? We were. And here's a lesson in life. I let my ego believe that. And I lost that intensity. And next thing I started to want to be uh, thought of like the big guys. You know, I had my imposter syndrome. If we had stayed a blue collar agency, it would have been a very different outcome because the clients and the consumer want the kind of creativity that we're bringing to the marketplace because it puts a smile in the consumer's face. They get it, they feel it, and more importantly, they want to buy it. Where what you're doing out there is you're putting these this content out on far away from ours reach of desire. And the great adage you've never proven is the person that said half my advertising is working. I don't know what half. And I knew what half was working because I could tell by the case sales 
what was successful or not. But I let my ego get in the way. And I think a lot of good employees paid the price for it because we were very successful moving upstream as an agency, but we didn't have a global network. We didn't have global resources. We didn't, you know, it was like a military that'd say you're attacked without a supply chain. You know, so we made some great grounds, but looking around, we, we suddenly realized that we were in territory we shouldn't be in, but by then it's impossible to reverse your position. Yeah. And, and this is me sharing stuff between your and my personal relationship where hopefully people appreciate and, and I think this is, we, we, you and I sort of crossed that line. Now we're publicly talking about your and my relationship and all of our past, but you and I used to meet in, I think it was called Betty's on King Street. Is that, is that actually what it's called? Betty's. It was really called Betty Ford's because it was a play on the fact that Betty Ford was a clinic. People went to sober up and Betty Ford sued Betty's because last thing they wanted is Betty Ford attached to, uh, it was the president's wife that she founded this. So they changed it to Betty's and you and I would meet at this dive bar yeah. and, and be best of friends, even though we were great competitors too. Yeah. And, and it, people know that you've been my mentor and, and we would meet in there and you'd give me either insights or you'd sort of give me ideas and, you know, you'd share even clients with me that you couldn't work with. And, you know, I, I probably learned how to run an agency in, in Betty's and in some ways I learned how to be a human, a better human in, in Betty's. But I do remember we sat there one time and you just didn't look the same. I can't remember if your words were, I've lost the energy for it or, or whatever it was. And, and, and I'm going to try and frame this up to the mass world. You are on top of the world. But if you sort of go from mass down to the me, and I'll use your term from mass to me, I think Tony knew that not only was the world changing, I think you were changing. It almost became the end of this chapter from there on and, and, and maybe sort of describe to people. So the agency's at the top of the game, the economy shifts, you have this persona of literally legend. You're in the legends hall of fame at this point for marketing and advertising. You're on the cover of magazines. I think at this point you're on a TV show at this point, actually recipe to riches, I think didn't have a bad idea to the rest of the world, but that's not really what was going on. And so maybe take us to this, how did it start to unravel? And, and maybe unravel is the wrong term. Maybe you started to unravel. Um, and so how did this chapter sort of transition to coming to an end? You know, as you get older, you reflect on it. I, I really was going through a midlife crisis. My marriage was breaking up, my doing. I had lost my energy for the agency. I'd come back with a win and I felt like I was play acting. I just wasn't, I didn't, I, I needed something new. I needed a new tightrope. I'd done it all. At that time, the other trigger, I had forgotten about it, I'll bring it up in this show, is marketing went from spending budgets to investing. When they spent budgets, they always had an appetite for risk. I'm going to spend a little bit there. Who knows if that idea is going to work or not? The Tony Mattis of the world, Dale Hoobers of the world, incredible risk takers. They always went to capital C for these big ideas. And all of a sudden, it was investing. Is that going to work? How much is it going to cost? Are we going to get a return? We'd present ideas that would blow the the meeting room away. And then two weeks later, I haven't heard us peep and finally call the brand manager. Well, we're waiting to see what the states are going to do, because if we can use that stuff, we'll save money. So all of that was the writing on the wall that said that uh, this was going to be a new generation agency. It'll be data-driven. It'll be risk-averse. And I didn't want anything part of it. So I managed to, to it took me two years to do this right. Anybody that wanted a job, we set them up for success in a new agency that merged with our company. And anybody that didn't, we paid a lot of money to package them out. So I walked out with my head high. But when I walked out that day, I felt such relief. But I also had no idea what I was going to do 
the rest of my life. And I have a lot of life to live. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment. Presented by RBC. I want to take a moment to thank RBC for renewing their sponsorship of Chatter That Matters. I've spent four decades working with brands all over the world, and I can tell you without hesitation and with absolute conviction that RBC is truly in a league of their own. What they are doing beyond banking is to help humanity survive and thrive and communities prosper. RBC wants youth to find their path in life, athletes to own their podium, artists to find their audience, entrepreneurs to realize their dreams, and the disadvantaged to be advantaged. RBC's most recent initiative is My Money Matters. It's a free financial hub to help people understand money, make better decisions, feel more in control, and take away stress. There's not one ask on this site. No products they're trying to sell, nor services they want to offer. And RBC is the first to say that no matter where you bank, take advantage of your financial advisor. They're free, and they have ideas on how you can get more from your money. So thank you, RBC. We've been on this journey together for 200 episodes, and we have so many more stories of perseverance, possibility, and positivity to share. And speaking of stories, it's time to get back to mine. So you went from this mass agency to now it's just Tony Chapman and not Capital C. And and Tony Chapman and Capital C got separated. You're standing and looking at another tightrope, Tony. You know, you're older. What now? Like, what led to this next reinvention? Like, this is the fourth reinvention. I got approached by universities. You want to come and teach? I couldn't imagine myself teaching the same course twice. And what I had developed quite a skill at in terms of how I positioned my agency was speaking in front of large audiences. But I remember, like, I would do it for free. And I said, well, maybe I can get involved in speaking. And so I started off, and I remember my first keynote you know, I think I charged the client $3,000 and I worked on it for two weeks because they go, that's so much money for a talk. And they got their money's worth. I fed off the energy of that audience. I loved it. I started synthesizing, compressing what I learned and everything came down to one, one concept. Attention is the oxygen of, of life. Attention is the oxygen of human endeavor. It breathes life in how you parent, mentor, moderate, lead, market, sell. You need attention. So I was walking into a world where I knew I could help people get the attention they deserve. And what was headwinds for most became unbelievable tailwinds for me, which was the sense that it was becoming the age of noise, the age of cynicism, the age of distraction. So attention was becoming, uh, brands were starving for it. People were starving for it. So I, I, I just roared into that insight. And I started speaking all over the world, Mark, and I was crushing it. And I was in China and I was in Spain and Warsaw and Scotland, all over Canada, North America, making a great living because I didn't have any employees. But I realized that I just walked out of that audience. I'm, I'm going to get a 9.5 or 10 out of 10. I mean, it just, they they loved it. They'll never have me back because they heard me speak. So I went to them and I said, listen, I'll deliver your keynote, but why don't you keep me around for the entire day? And I'll come on stage when someone like Mark gets, before Mark gets off the stage, Mark, I got a couple of questions. Or I'll interview your CEO, I'll interview, or I'll moderate a panel. And I'll synthesize all of the stuff that I've heard. And at the end of each section, say, here's my three takeaways. Suddenly, my clients, instead of being one-offs, became repeat. I got, a, I got one next week that'll be my 10th conference with them. I'm loving what I'm doing, making a great living, traveling everywhere. You know, next thing you know, COVID hits. Yeah, this minor thing called COVID. 16 gigs get canceled within 11 hours. 
I guess I'm done. I'm going to retire. What else am I going to do? I mean, I didn't know how long this was going to go on. And I went to RBC. I want to do a series on small business. They're the heart of our economy. They're going to it hurt the most. And here's the show. I've got this little podcast I've been playing with called Chatter That Matters. And each week I'm going to share a story of someone, a small business owner, how they're dealing with today's realities. And then I'm going to bring in three smart people, people like Mark Ferrier or Arlene Dickinson that would never have time for that individual small business owner. And I'll bring him on the show. RBC snapped up eight episodes. I went, wow, I did produce the eight episodes. Looking back and listening to them, I'm going, they weren't bad. You know, they're were, they were actually, they the wheels fall off. Tracy Shepard's, you know, they had some drama and some tension. Then they bought another eight episodes. Then they came to me and said, we love what you're doing, but can you expand it to go beyond small business? And that was where Chatter That Matters became such an incredible labor of love for me. And it the whole premise has now changed because, again, the insight, this world is overpowered by negativity. We're drinking from it from a fire hose. We're drowning in it. And therefore, we're thinking the world's impossible. So I came up with this premise is I'm going to counter this storm of negativity and this growing sense of impossibility with stories of positivity and possibility. Wow. And that was the essence. And then I framed it as each week, I'm going to share a story of someone who's overcome circumstances to either reclaim or chase their dreams. And in doing so, they change their world and often ours for the better. And I started to really put this in as a, as a, the essence of it. And next thing you know, I'm getting pitched by people all over the world. People you would know, gold medalists, uh, best selling authors and people you've never heard of. But the underlying methods message is everybody's going through these circumstances and there's some powerful lessons in life. Like we got from yours difference between failure and a mistake, uh, resilience. Uh, empathy. There's powerful lessons in life that everybody that listens to the show can take away, just like I do on the conference floor. Here's the three takeaways. What is really remarkable to me is that the conference business has come back. So from a guy that was trying to get balance in his life between putting out a weekly podcast and conferences, I'm busier than I've ever been. But I, at the same time, because I'm on these two tight ropes, I have more energy than I've ever had in my entire life. I've never had this level of clarity or energy. And uh, and I say to anybody, never stop chasing your purpose or your passion. Retirement is you're retiring to the end of your life and it's going to happen quicker than you can. If you want to extend it, keep moving, keep moving your mind, your heart and your body. And I think we're going to dig into that. So, so we're going to get to that really quickly because I think that, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. I, I'm not sure... All of your listeners actually have heard your story and I'm humbled to be able to share it with your audience and everyone else. The thing that I really want to focus in on though, it's this idea of reinvention. I really want to try and dig into it a little bit to leave your listeners with reinvention matters. You've gone through the reinvention when it was fear. You've gone through the reinvention through excitement and maybe just talk a little bit about how you think about reinvention and maybe helping to your point, the possibility of reinvention is a positivity that we can leave some of the listeners with today. I think as a country, we've been resting on this, this sense of security. You know, Canada is the best place to live. Canada has the most tolerance. Uh, Canada is the place where everybody around the world wants to come to. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. I mean, we've got absolutely a beautiful country. We've got a lot of land space and there's all the reasons why. 
But if we really want to look at our world, we are boring our way to that sense of security versus earning our way there. As individuals, we understand that, but we seem to forget that as voters. The concept of deficits and paying, and I often call it, you know, bribing for ballots, it just seems to become part of our democracy. Reinvention is our only way forward. So let's start with the country and move it back to the individual. Great. Canada has to reinvent itself. We no longer need big shipping lanes. We no longer need a scale of population. We need an ability to innovate, commercialize and monetize that innovation and to market it around the world. And very often those ideas now can be marketed through the clouds. We need to think about some of these countries that are just absolutely reinventing themselves because they understand there's a new economy and we can go after it. And we want to be number one in it, not number three. We don't want to spend billions of dollars for somebody else's battery plant. We want to be the country that's helping to invent the future. And the area I want Canada to play on the most is to be a superpower in agriculture, to be a superpower in content and creativity because Canadians are very creative. And yet we have very a lot of diversity so we can create content for the world. I want us to be a superpower in the green economy, because we're known that way as environmentally conscious. And I want to be a superpower in the cities of the future where we find a way to connect those who have with those who have not. So that's my dream for Canada. Okay. And take advantage of our natural resources. So every time we take an, a barrel of oil out of the ground or anything that's non-renewable, part of that money goes into funding the new economy. It becomes a circle economy. So that over time, like Norway is today, sitting with $1.4 trillion sovereign fund, and owning 3% of the world's stock market, Canada is creating this wealth and reinvesting it. So we're creating purposeful jobs for the future. In terms of organizations, we're playing safe too often. We're not investing in R&D in this country. We're not investing enough in innovation. We're not allowing young people with ideas to get into the, uh, to the C-suite fast enough. We're holding on to the legacy in the past because what got us there is going to get us to the future. When it comes to the individuals, it's harder. You spent the last 10 years having cement poured on your feet. You've come out of a university education with $60,000 in debt, and there's no perfectly paved path that used to be. You're dealing with the insecurity of seeing your parents, whether they're blue collar or white collar, several times being disrupted in your life if you're 25 years old. And now you're about to be disrupted. And you're no longer competing for jobs and with people in India or areas of the world where they make less money. You're now going to be competing with machines and AI. So the reinvention has to begin at the school level. We have to start bringing in collaboration, critical thinking. We have to bring in a new methodology. We have to get away from textbooks and the legacy and the tenure and the professors that have taught the same way and the four P's of marketing. And we start have to facilitate conversations. And when we start thinking that from the education, we've got to start drafting kids as early as high school and start identifying their interests and passions and start giving them courses that matter to them, that excite them, that get them alive. And, and then we got to start bringing them into those parts of the economy that really will benefit from that type of thinking. Our liquid natural gas, we could be a world power, but do it in the most environmentally efficient way. When we start thinking that way and acting that way and believing that way, it's only 40 million people to feed. We have one fifth of the world's fresh water. I mean, it, when we start thinking about our abundance of riches and instead of squandering it on it, we start really investing that way. This is going to be a country that for the next 400 years, people are going to want to do whatever they can to be part of because it is creating a new world and a new economy versus what's happening now is kind of a disappearing as sort of a, a small nation in the sea of change. Yeah. And, and maybe this is your biggest idea that works ever. 
and if people are listening and, and listening to Tony's passion, I think the biggest thing that I take away from this is we need to reframe the whole thought of reinvention. Reinvention right now is like a negative thing. It's like something bad happens and then I've got to reinvent and it's almost a passive defensive position. And maybe somebody in your my old world will take this challenge on. We need to convince Canada, to your point at the governmental level, the organizational level, and to your point, the individual level, which is way harder. And education. And education. That reinvention is a proactive word. It's an action word. It is a skill set that we need to develop and needs to be embraced by everyone. And and it's not a defensive position. And I think that if we could figure out a way to do that, that reinvention was actually a proactive, super supported, encouraged piece of every individual, every organization, every politician, and to your point, every education, and that they embraced reinvention as a really positive thing. I think that we'd start to see the change we all need. Absolutely. And get unions involved to say, you're not just doing this deal. You're setting yourself up for the next 50 deals. We're all part of this renaissance. What an extraordinary time to create this tightrope for Canada to go across and everybody in the world go, they found a way to do it by giving people a hands up versus a handout. And everybody that's grabbing onto that rung will feel like I did when I walked into the rib ticklers and said, you know what? I'm part of their success. And I think that's the greatest gift in the world. Well, Tony, first of all, thank you for letting me do this. And I'm going to try my best to summarize our three points and, and you may summarize them. Okay. But I, I think the first one is really this, which is you've got to understand that the tightrope is going to be there and you've got to take the first step. And I think that that is really one of the takeaways is that life is going to present us with these moments and the tightrope is there and it's scary at times. If you're lucky enough, your passion helps you take the first step on the tightrope. That, that's really one of my takeaways. And yours was obviously creativity. I think the second one really is around reinvention which is it's inevitable. And if we can go from defensive reinvention to really offensive reinvention, I, I think that we're going to see change. And then, you know, lastly for me, I'm going to go back to something that you said to me a long time, which is, Tony, you've gone through a lot. There's many faces of Tony Chapman, but the one thing that stayed consistent is your soul, your humbleness and your soul. And I think that if we can all lead with your humbleness and your soul like you do, and we can all talk about things that aren't easy at times. I think the soul is one of the greatest narratives that you've created in your career. Mark, I've enjoyed this. I had no idea how this was going to go. Yes. Thanks for sharing again, my friend. It was my way. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. And let's chat soon. Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC.